Good morning, church family. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. I've had the opportunity over the last few months to preach at a couple of different churches. And there's something different about this one, though, because this is home. This is family. This is where um, my kids have grown up the last 12 years. This is where I've grown up the last 12 years. Um, So it's a special place to be here. It's also nice to be here because the other churches, you can't control the height of the pulpit. And this one here, I'm like, okay, I'm going to adjust this perfectly for me so it fits just right. But grab your Bibles for me and let's jump into our text and we'll read together Psalm chapter 55. Psalm chapter 55. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Give heed to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint, and I am surely distracted. Because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked, for they shake wickedness down upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror has covered me. I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness, Selah. I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and the tempest. Confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I have seen violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around her upon her walls, and wickedness and mischief are in her midst. Destruction is in her midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from her streets. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has magnified himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my close companion and my familiar friend. We who had sweet counsel together, walked in the house of God in the throng. Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol, for evil is in their dwelling, in their midst. As for me, I shall call upon God and Yahweh will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I will bring my complaint and moan, and he will hear my voice. He will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me. For they are many who strive with me. God will hear and answer them, even the one who sits enthroned from of old, Selah, because they do not change and they do not fear God. My companion has put forth his hands against those who are at peace with him. He has violated his covenant, His speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden upon Yahweh, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. But you, O God, will bring them down to the pit of corruption. Men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. Let's pray. Father, you are great and awesome in your power and in your might. You created the heavens and the earth. You shaped and formed every mountain, every tree. You filled the oceans and you sustain every living creature. You are holy and set apart from everything you've made, from all of your creation. You are righteous and just in all your ways. You are a kind and a loving father and you are the rock of salvation. As we look to your word now, God, may we know you in deeper and more intimate ways. 
Reveal yourself to us through your word, God. Reveal your character to us. Grow our thoughts of you and grow our affections for you. And be glorified and magnified in everything that we say and that we do. And may we put you on display this day and in our lives this week. Amen. In his beloved and classic allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan describes the Christian life from the perspective of a pilgrim on a journey. That pilgrim, named Christian, begins his journey with a weight and a heavy burden upon his back, a weight that overwhelms him, and each day he becomes more and more hunched over as he carries that weight. And we're told that that weight is his sin and his guilt before the holy king of the celestial city. In a moving and a beautiful account, just a few chapters into the book though, we read how Christian was set free from that burden and from that sin. As he stood gazing at the cross, the weight of his sin fell off, it was taken away. His feelings of guilt and shame were removed and he was filled with wonder and with awe, with joy and with relief at the forgiveness that he was now given because of the work of Christ. Pilgrim now continues his journey without that burden on his back. And yet, as Christian continues his journey, it's not an easy journey. It's not one that's free from trouble or from trial or from difficulty. Even though he's forgiven and free, he still faces trials, temptations, he battles sin, he deals with fear, doubt, unwise decisions. In his journey, he moves between immense highs spiritually, but he also then falls into deep lows emotionally. Throughout his journey, he deals with discouragement. He deals with failure. The burden of his sin's gone, once and for all taken care of at the cross, but on his journey towards that celestial city, there are still times when he feels weighed down by the sin that he still battles and by the difficult things and the trials he faces along the way. The longer I've been a Christian, the more I've come to appreciate Bunyan's story, the more I've come to appreciate the pilgrim's journey because I've seen myself in that journey so many different times in so many different ways. Some days, some days I find that I can truly and deeply give thanks to the Lord for the wonderful gift of life. I can look to him and I can give thanks and see the beauty and the joy of knowing him. Some days it's easy to rejoice that the holy, majestic God of heaven and earth loved me and redeemed me. Some days, no matter what happens, I find that I can easily rest, not just in the sovereignty of God, but also in the goodness in his sovereignty. But I also have days where I'm tired, I'm weary, I'm worn out, where I'm battling sin, where I'm discouraged by the difficulties of life in a fallen world. I have days when I struggle to remind myself of the truths that I know from God's word. To be real honest, I have days when I struggle to even want to read God's word. I have days when it's not easy to take every thought captive. I have days when I'm wrestling and when I'm battling, days when I just want to quit. Anybody else ever have days like that? Anybody else ever struggle with these types of battles? I think that all of us would admit that we have days like this to varying degrees, but it's not something we like talking about, is it? When we have these struggles, we often feel alone, we often feel ashamed, guilty even. Right? We don't want other people to know about them, we feel like it's something we have to deal with on our own, because aren't we always supposed to be happy and joyful? 
Aren't we always supposed to be content and have a smile on our face, especially when we're at church around other believers? So we go to church and we interact with our fellow believers and when they ask how we're doing, we face this brief internal struggle where we're not sure what to say. How truthful should I be? How much information should I give them? And so in the end, we often say, I'm fine, I'm okay. Maybe we say I'm good. And then we walk away feeling a little guilty over that answer because inside we're not really doing that fine. Inside we're not really doing that well. We're not good, we're hurting and we're wrestling. And throughout scripture, we see examples of God's people also struggling with some of these same issues. And I believe there's a comfort in knowing that God's people face these same discouragements and doubts and sin and fear and heartache. Men like Moses and Joshua and Elijah battled these things. They had discouragement, they had frustration, either over their own sin, over the sin of the people that they were leading. They battled feelings of being alone and worn out. We saw that in Pat's sermon last week with Elijah where he had this massive spiritual victory, one that was just absolutely incredible. And then what does he do immediately following? He runs and he hides in a cave because he feels alone and he feels discouraged and worn out. We see Hannah pouring her aching heart out to the Lord because she can't stand the weight and the battle of not being able to have a child. We see Paul pouring his heart out to God saying, I need you to give me relief from this trial, God. I can't take it anymore. Three times he asked for the Lord to remove his trial because he wants relief. In the book of Psalms, we see various authors of the Psalms poetically capture these same struggles in song after song. Authors who cried out to God during their trials, during their tribulations, writing things like we read this morning in Psalm 43. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Or how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? David battled these struggles and these trials. David, the mighty warrior, faced fears and doubts. David, the military conqueror, dealt with heartache and despair and his own sin and the consequences of that sin. David, the king of Israel, the one that God said was a man after his own heart, dealt with failure and with being weighed down by life. In multiple Psalms, David pours his heart out to the Lord and he expresses his need for God to hear him and to help him and to be with him as he faced life's hardships and its difficulties. One of those Psalms written by David is our passage today, Psalm 55. In this Psalm, David uses some of his strongest language to express his hurt and his sorrow. He expresses anger and frustration. He expresses pain. He expresses fear. He lets the reader know that he's tired that he's afraid, that he doesn't want to deal with his circumstances anymore. But David also runs to God in this psalm. In the midst of his great trial, he preaches truth to himself, and David the shepherd finds rest and comfort in the care of the great shepherd. And so this morning, we're going to look at this passage. And I want to ask the question, what was it that brought David comfort during this trial? Where did David go, or rather, to whom did David go when he needed comfort and strength and we want to learn from this song that he wrote. We're gonna break our chapter up into four sections this morning. Number one will be David's plea to the Lord in verses one through three. We'll see David's anguish before the Lord in verses four through eight. David's betrayal in verses nine through 15 and also verses 20 through 21. And then lastly, we'll see David's trust and deliverance in verses 16 through 19 as well as 22 and 23. So let's start by looking at David's plea to the Lord. David's plea to the Lord in verses one through three. 
Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Give heed to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I am surely distracted because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked. For they shake wickedness down upon me and in anger they bear a grudge against me. David begins his song begging the Lord to be near him, pleading with God to listen to him. He asks God not to hide from him. When he says, give heed to me in verse two, it literally means pay attention to me. I remember many years ago when my children were toddlers, I'd come home from work one day and they were excitedly trying to tell me about their day. And sadly, I was distracted on my phone. And so I don't remember which one of them it was, but I remember a frustrated little voice. I remember it very vividly saying, Daddy, you're not listening to me. Pay attention. That's David in these verses. He's saying, pay attention to me, please, God. Listen to what I'm saying. Have mercy on me. Answer me, please, oh God. You can hear the desperation in David's cry here. I'm restless, he says in verse two. It's the idea of not being able to settle his heart or his mind. My complaint is so great, God, it's so heavy, I can't be still, I can't calm down, I can't settle my mind or my heart. At the end of verse two, he says, I'm surely distracted, is how it translates it in the LSV. In the ESV, it translated as I moan. It literally means to make an uproar, to agitate greatly. David's describing his internal emotions at this point. He's saying they're in an uproar, God. My insides are agitated. They're twisted as a result of this trial. I'm sick to my stomach, God, because of all of the difficulties I'm facing. David's saying, God, my trial is great. I'm a mess. I need you. So please be there for me. Now, theologically, David knows that God is with him. David knows that God is there. In Psalm 139, he asks the question, where can I go from your spirit? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I go to Sheol, you are there. If I go to the bottom of the ocean, you're there. In the darkness, you're there. In the mother's womb, you're there. David knows that God is not far off. He knows he's not hidden from God. He knows that God is not blind to his struggles. What he's saying though is in this particular moment, in this particular trial, I don't feel near to you, God. I feel like I'm alone and I can't handle it, so I'm begging you to help me. In verse three, he describes the voice of the enemy, the pressure of the wicked. They're, they're coming in at him from all sides and he can't run away from it. He's painting a broad picture here of why he's struggling. As the chapter goes on, he'll get a little bit more specific. But he's saying, this struggle that I'm going through is because of personal attacks that are happening to me right now, God. My enemies in the wicked are coming at me from all sides. They're overwhelming me. The word for noise there in verse three is literally the idea of a bleeding or a thundering. There's this idea that he's conveying where he's saying, I can't even think right now, God, because of the barrage of noise coming at me from all sides from those who want to bring me down. So that's his initial opening plea to the Lord. Now in verses four through eight, we see David's anguish. He now opens up and expresses more deeply and pours his heart out to God about the pain that he's experiencing. David started out by saying, God, I need you. I'm overwhelmed by what's happening. And now in verses four through eight, he says, and here's what being overwhelmed is doing to me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and horror has covered me. I think sometimes in the English language, right, we've, we've cheapened words. We don't use them the way they're meant to be used. But when we look at this, this is strong language. We don't talk this way anymore, right? We don't use words like, I'm in anguish. We say, I'm sad today. But David's saying, no, I'm not just sad. I'm in anguish. 
The terrors of death have fallen on me. Fear and trembling have come upon me. That word for anguish literally means to writhe in pain. When he's talking about terror, he's saying it's, it's dread. It's a horrible, paralyzing fear. What I'm going through right now, God, has absolutely paralyzed me because of fear. This is a very visceral picture that David paints here of personal agony and suffering. This trial, this situation that David's facing, this thing that's causing him deep inner turmoil, emotional heartbreak, the pressure he's feeling from all sides, there's no escape, there's no rest, and he gets to his breaking point, and he looks to heaven, and he cries out, and he says, God, I'm hurting, and I need you. That's David's heartbreak in this chapter that he's revealing to all of us. And in the hardest of times, in the greatest of struggles, David knows there's only one place to run for hope and for comfort. And so he goes there. He goes to Yahweh, raising his plea to God, lifting his eyes to God, knowing that there's no answers, no comfort, no hope anywhere but in God. We as believers are reminded of this same truth in the New Testament, that we have a loving Father in heaven that we can cry out to in times of need. Romans 8, 15 and Galatians 4, 6 tell us that not only did God save us in Christ, but he adopted us as his children. Yahweh didn't just wipe away the sin of rebellious slaves and then send them on their way, but rather, when he redeemed those rebellious slaves, he then made us his beloved children. He didn't just do away with our debt, commute our sentence, and send us on our way. He did all of that, and then he took us off the streets, and then he clothed us, and then he fed us, and he loved us, and he adopted us, and he continually lavishes his never-ending, unchanging, steadfast, always and forever, covenant-keeping love upon us. Just like a child runs to a parent when they're scared and they're hurting, we can run to God our Father when we're afraid and hurting and when we're struggling, just as David did. And we're told in the book of Hebrews that we have a great high priest who sympathizes with all of our weaknesses. And right now, at this very moment, that high priest is sitting at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. As I mentioned earlier, though, we're often afraid to open up about these kinds of trials and struggles. We don't want people to know about this level of discouragement and hurt in our lives. I don't like that. I like projecting strength and calm. I want people to know I'm trusting the Lord. My pride doesn't like to look vulnerable. Look at the superscript, though, at the top of the psalm. David says, for the choir director. David wrote this psalm, and he gave it to the choir director to be sang publicly by Israel's choir. He's not hiding any of his struggles here. All of Israel is going to know of David's battle and his struggles. All of Israel is going to know of his hurt and his pain. But as we'll see momentarily, all of Israel will also know of his faith and trust in a holy, all-powerful, all-loving God. And I point this out because I think we need to remember it's okay to struggle. We need to also remember it's okay to admit that we're struggling, especially to fellow believers, believers who can pray for us, encourage us, bear our burdens with us. We're not lesser Christians or less mature if we have these deep struggles. Sometimes I think we need to remind ourselves that a joy-filled life and a sanctified life is not one without trials and struggles and heartache. Rather, it's the one in which the trials and the heartache and the struggles we face drive us to the Father and they grow our trust and our rest in Him and in His promises. In verses six through eight, we see that everything David is dealing with makes him want to run away from it all. Oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. 
Behold, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. Selah, I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and the tempest. You guys remember the Southwest commercials from a few years ago where something really, really embarrassing would happen and then the tagline was, wanna get away? That's David, but it's not because of something embarrassing. That's David because of his trial, because of his heartache. He's saying, I wanna get away. I can't take it. I don't wanna be around people right now. I just wanna run and I want to hide. And I think all of us in life, in one moment or another, have faced things where we wanted to run and hide. We just needed to get away from it all. Maybe it's the result of marital struggles we're having. Maybe it's the result of a rebellious child who's walked away from the Lord, a strained family relationship, stress from the workplace, financial difficulties, a medical or a health issue, an ongoing battle of sin, whatever it may be, We've all had moments where we wanna run away and when we do, when we struggle, like David, we need to run to our Father and pour our hearts out to him. Let's move now to see David's betrayal in verses nine through 15 and 20 through 21. We see the specific cause of David's anguish and his turmoil here. David was betrayed by a close personal friend. We see that in verses nine through 15. Confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues. I've seen violence and strife in the city. Day and night, they go around her walls and wickedness and mischief are in her midst. Destruction is in her midst. So he's describing chaos in the city. But then in verse 12, he says, for it's not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. It's not someone I expected. It's not someone that was somebody who I had a long-term feud with. He's saying, it's my close companion, my familiar friend, a man my equal. We who had sweet counsel together, walked in the house of God in the throng. David was betrayed by a close personal friend, not an acquaintance or a work friend, not a neighbor or teacher, not a boss or a coworker, but by someone very near and very dear to him. Someone who was his close companion, someone he sat in God's house with and worshiped God together with. Someone he trusted, someone he had deep conversations with. David's anguish was caused by the bitter betrayal of someone so close to him that it absolutely rocked his world. Many commentators believe that this psalm is written during the time when David's son Absalom was attempting to overthrow his father and steal the throne. We know that Psalm 3 was written during that time and some have said Psalm 63 may have been written during that time as well. This psalm doesn't explicitly state it, but I think that there are parallels to the story that David's telling here that align with what's recorded in 2 Samuel 15 in the following chapters where we see Absalom's rebellion. In 2 Samuel 15, we know that David and Absalom already had a strained relationship. One of David's other sons, David's, uh, Absalom's half-brother, had physically dishonored Absalom's sister. Absalom didn't like how David handled that, so he took matters into his own hands and he killed that half-brother. He killed David's son. And then Absalom fled in exile. At some point, he returns from his exile, but that relationship is still strained because he goes an entire two years before he even sees his father again. And then in 2 Samuel 15, we see Absalom's plot revealed. Little by little, he began to win the heart of the people of Israel over. Chapter 15, verse six tells us that he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He put himself in a place of judgment over them and then he would say things like, ah, the king's too busy for you. If only I was judge, I would be able to solve your problems. He sweet-talked them and he stole their hearts. And then he makes his move and he attempts to overthrow his father. In verse 12 of chapter 15, we're told that David's counselor, Ahithophel, betrays David and joins Absalom's cause. 
David realizes now in chapter 15, 16, and 17, the danger that he's in. He and his family, they're forced to flee from the palace, from Jerusalem. And as they flee, his own people start to turn against him. They mock him. They harass him on his way out of the city. In verse 31 of chapter 15, David finds out that Ahithophel, his friend, his counselor, had turned against him and was joining Absalom's cause. And he prays in verse 31 that God would turn Ahithophel's counsel to foolishness. In chapter 16, verse 23, it tells us that David and now Absalom followed the counsel of Ahithophel as if it was the word of God. That was how wise he was. That was how close he was to David. His counsel was esteemed and it was valued. And that friend whose counsel was as if it was from the word of God was the one who turned on David. In chapter 16, Ahithophel is not just counseling Absalom on how to get the throne, but he also counsels him on how to shame and dishonor his father by having physical relations with his father's concubines on the roof of the palace in the sight of all Israel. So in Psalm 55, David specifically refers to one friend and counselor who betrays him. But in 2 Samuel, we see a full picture now of what David's facing at this time. We see the parallels between the two passages. His description in verses 9 and 11 of the violence and the strife in the city describe the chaos around him as he's fleeing Jerusalem with his family. His prayer in verse 9 of Psalm 55 to confuse and divide the council echoes his prayer in 2 Samuel 15 to make Ahithophel's council foolish. This is David's trial and difficulty right now. His son Absalom, who's already murdered one of his own uh, half-brothers, is now out to get his father. David knows there can't be two kings on the throne. So in addition to Absalom trying to steal the throne, David also knows that in order to get the throne, his own son's going to have to kill him. So he's on the run from his own son. His own people have turned on him to follow Absalom. He's in danger from them as he's fleeing. He's fleeing the city and the home that he loves. And on top of that, his close confidant, his counselor, his dear friend, abandons and betrays him to join Absalom's cause. Now maybe there's a chance that David saw it coming with Absalom. The relationship was already strained. Absalom had already shown his true character to his father. Maybe at some point, word got back to David. Hey, you should see Absalom's trying to steal the hearts of the people. But to have Ahithophel betray him though, I don't think David saw that coming. This was the guy that he went to for counsel. They worshiped together. They had deep conversations. And I think this betrayal blindsided David. And with this blow, David felt as if his whole world was crashing down. The hits just kept coming, and David is at the end of his rope. He's facing death, not just for him, but for his family, for his friends who fled with him. He's facing bitter betrayal from all around him. He's facing uncertainty about the future. He's facing the prospect of either killing his own son or being killed by that son. And I think in the midst of all this, as he's fleeing, I believe the words spoken to him by Nathan the prophet when he rebuked David for his sin with Bathsheba are ringing in his ears. 2 Samuel 12, verses 10 through 11, during Nathan's rebuke of David, he says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. In the midst of this trial, David's also reliving his past sin. He knows he's been forgiven, but the consequences of that sin are now coming to fruition before his very eyes. With all of this beating down on him, is it any wonder that he wanted to run away from it all? Is it any wonder that he was in anguish and terror? 
Our struggles may not take the same form as David's. We may not be facing death. We may not be having to flee our homes. But at some point, each of us have felt betrayed or hurt by someone, maybe even someone close. Each of us have faced the consequences of our sin. Each of us have faced trials and difficulties, some that may have been caused by our own unwise decisions. Others, though, seem to come out of nowhere, and they're not caused by any unwise decisions we make. We've all lost loved ones. We've all been hurt in our friendships and in our relationships. We've struggled with physical ailments. Whatever the cause, every one of us has been, or if we haven't been yet, will be in anguish and hurting at some point in our lives. And it's in those moments we're going to be looking for comfort and strength. And so as we move on to our final point, let's see what brought David comfort and strength. Let's look at David's trust and deliverance, verses 16 through 19 and verses 22 through 23. As for me, I shall call upon God and Yahweh will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I will bring my complaint and moan and he will hear my voice. He will redeem my soul and peace from the battle which is against me for there are many who strive with me. Do you hear the change in David's tone in verse 16? Notice the contrast between those earlier pleas. The desperation appears to be gone. The pain and the anguish appear to have lessened or to be gone. It's as if David has unloaded his burden before the Lord and in doing this, in running to God and pouring out his heart to God, his heavenly father, it's allowed him to calm his heart now. Now he can begin to preach comforting truth to himself. David's initial plea implied that he felt alone. Here we see him remember he's not alone. Here we see him beginning to rest in who God is and in God's promises. When we feel alone, which we will, when we don't feel near to God, which is going to happen in our lives, it's not because God's position towards us has changed, it's because our position towards him has. God has not moved away from us, rather we haven't ran to him. We feel alone because we try and live life alone. We feel alone because we allow ourselves to focus on our hurts and our failures, on our fears and our doubts instead of on his greatness, his love, his mercy, his grace. We've either forgotten or we've not purposed to remember his covenant promises to his children. I think a temptation that we face at times when we're feeling alone is because we also try to measure our closeness to God in a subjective fashion based on the type of the day we've had. When we've spent time in the word, when we've sang worship songs all day, we've listened to a sermon on our drive, when we were patient with the kids, we call that a good day. And so on that day, we subjectively feel close to God. But when we're running late, when we've had no time for Bible reading, when we haven't prayed, when we were impatient with all around us, when we battled lustful, sinful thoughts all day, when we didn't respond to people well, what do we do? We then call that a bad day. And then we subjectively don't feel close to God on that day. And the truth that we need to remember, the truth that David had to remind himself of, is that on my best of days, when I think I've done everything right, God looks at me and he sees Christ. He sees his beloved son, he sees my debt of sin has been paid at the cross, and he sees Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to me. That's on my best of days. And then on my worst of days, when I do everything wrong, when I'm battling sin, I need to remember that on those worst days, when God looks at me, he sees Christ. He sees his beloved son. He sees my debt of sin was paid at the cross and he sees Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to me. 
God is steadfast and faithful towards us. And when we feel alone, it's because we haven't been faithful to run to him. And in running to God, acknowledging our desperate need for him and living utterly dependent on him, his strength is magnified in our weakness. But as for me, I shall call upon God and Yahweh will save me. Evening, morning, and at noon, I will bring my complaint and moan and he will hear my voice. In David's initial plea, he was begging for God to be near him. Now he's declaring with bold confidence that God is near him, that God will hear him, that God will answer him, and God will deliver him. And he doesn't know the outcome yet, though. He's still on the run. God hasn't given him victory over Absalom, but he's still saying, God's gonna deliver me. God's gonna take care of this. Where did this confidence come from? What brought about this switch in David? We've seen him at his worst, and now he's totally turned it around, and we don't quite see what bridged that gap. I believe that it's when David took his eyes off of himself and his circumstances and when he fixed his gaze upon God and he was able to remind himself of who God was, then he was able to remember the truths of what God's promised to do for him, the ways that God sustained him and has been faithful and the promises that God made to continue to sustain him and those things are what brought David comfort and peace. Those things are what brought him this bold confidence to be able to say, God's got this. I believe David's theology of God, his knowledge of God, his understanding of God's character was what changed his perspective. The truths that he knew about God, that he preached to himself during these difficult trials, became the rock on which he found peace and rest. In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer starts chapter one with this opening phrase. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because what comes into my mind when I think about God, whether it's a high view or a low view of God, is going to dictate my interactions with him, my dependence on him, my trust in him, my affection toward him. If I have a high view of God, my dependence on him is going to be higher. My trust in him is going to be greater. My affection toward him will be stronger. But if I have a low view of God, or even let's just say a middle of the road, average mediocre view of God, I'm going to be tempted to trust in myself more. I won't want to be as dependent upon him. I won't see my need to be as dependent upon him. I'll have less of a desire to praise him because I'm gonna be resting in my own perceived abilities and in my own perceived wisdom. If I see myself as stronger than I actually am, I will never be able to see God for as strong as he actually truly is. A high view of God is rooted in our knowledge of God. It's rooted in our knowledge of his character, of what he's like. And this knowledge of God is not merely knowing facts about God. Growing up, I was a huge basketball fan and I cheered and rooted for Michael Jordan. And I could tell you a lot of stories about Michael Jordan and I could tell you his stats and I could recount to you his best games and I could tell you, you know, what years he won the championship. So I knew a lot about Michael Jordan, but I didn't know Michael Jordan. I just knew about him. And sometimes that's how we treat our relationship with God though. We know a lot about God and we can tell you stories about God and we can tell you things that we've read in scripture about him, but do we truly know God? Knowing God, again, is not just knowing facts about him, it's about knowing him in a personal, reconciled relationship. John 17, three, this is eternal life that they know you. Second Peter 1, three, we have all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. And as we know him, we worship him. 
As we know him, we praise him. As we know who he is and what he's done in redeeming us, we become completely and utterly overwhelmed with his holiness, with his majesty, with his grace, with his mercy. And we can now say with Moses, just like he did in Exodus 15, 11, who is like you, O God? Who is like you among the gods, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? That's what happened to David. He remembered who God was and he said, I can trust that God. J.I. Packer says, how can we turn our knowledge about God into a knowledge of, of God? The rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into a matter for meditation before God, which then leads us to prayer and praise to God. Here's what J.I. Packer's saying. He's saying, as we read scripture and we see these truths about God, his character, his promises, who he is, we then meditate on him. We chew on him. I've got a adorable little labradoodle at home. And when I give her a chew toy, she gnaws on that thing. I mean, you can just hear it. She's sitting on the ground in her little happy place and you just hear her teeth grinding away and she's getting every little last ounce of flavor out of that chew toy. That's what I need to be doing with the truths about God. I need to be chewing on them, gnawing on them, drawing every ounce of comfort and strength from who God is and what he's done for me. And as I meditate on God and what he's done, then I praise him for it and I thank him for it. Let me ask you this. What comes to your mind when you think about God? Be honest with yourself here. Don't just give the proper church answer, the answer we know we should give right now, but when you wake up tomorrow morning, what will be your thoughts about God? If the most important thing about us is what we think about God, what will be your thoughts of God tomorrow morning? Let's be really honest with ourselves. Will we even have thoughts of God when we first wake up in the morning? Or is the first thing our minds are gonna run to gonna be our phones, the stock market, social media, our to-do list for the day? Is that the first thing that's gonna come to our mind? Or will we wake up saying, God, thank you for another day. Help me to know you today. Help me to make you known to those around me today. Help me to glorify you today. Throughout the small, mundane inconveniences of life, what will your thoughts about God be? When you hit the massive trials, what will your thoughts about God be? Tozer goes on to say in that chapter, The Knowledge of the Holy, were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into our mind when we think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. In our last few moments, I'd like to extract from David's other Psalms what some of his thoughts about God were. Because again, we don't necessarily see him lay them all out in this particular passage. We see the sudden switch, but we don't see some of the truths that he would have preached to himself. So I'd like to cover some of those. I'm just gonna read these passages quickly. You can jot them down for reference to look at later. Or you can turn to them if you want. But let's start with Psalms, verses four, I'm sorry, chapter four, verse eight. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. David sees his well-being and his safety not as a result of his plans or his wisdom or his preparation, but he sees it as coming from God and God alone. Psalm chapter eight, verse one. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. David sees God as high and lifted up, majestic and set apart. That word for majestic means powerful, excellent, noble, glorious and worthy. That's how David views God. 
Psalms chapter 11, verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. David sees God as the one sitting on the throne. Not himself, not any other earthly king. God and God alone reigns and rules and none can compete with him. It doesn't matter who's president. It doesn't matter who's sitting on the Supreme Court. It doesn't matter who's governor. David knows that God and God alone is in control. He would agree with Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter four, who says the most high has everlasting dominion. He does according to his will and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? David's confidence is in a sovereign God. He knows that any trial, any difficulty he's going through came from this sovereign God. Psalm 13 Verses five and six, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. David looks back on God's past deliverances. He reminds himself of how God has dealt bountifully with him in the past. He's lavished upon him a steadfast, never changing, never ending, always and forever love. So was he struggling now, he's able to say God was faithful in the past and that same God's gonna be faithful again. Psalm 18, one through three. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. David was a brave and a mighty man of war, but he acknowledged that God was his strength. God was his fortress. God was his shield, his refuge. In his initial pleas, we see, remember, David wanted to run into the wilderness for refuge. He wanted to hide. But here, we see that David reminded himself he doesn't need to run for refuge because God is his refuge. The Lord who is worthy to be praised is his refuge. Psalm 18, six. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. David reminds himself here that God does hear him. He was begging God to hear him before, but now he's saying, I know that you hear me, God. You've heard me over and over. Psalm 32, 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord. Psalm 36, five through seven, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds, your righteousness is like the mountains of God, your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast save you, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 40, verse 11. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Time and time again, David comes back to God's steadfast love, to God's faithfulness. David saw God as always being faithful even when David was not. David saw God's love as never changing, never growing dim, even when he felt his own love was waning or growing weak. Psalm 51.5, I'm sorry, Psalm 51.1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. David saw God as gracious and merciful, extending forgiveness to even the worst of sinners. He's felt the weight of his sin, but he knows that God is a God who ransoms and redeems undeserving sinners. David acknowledged his sin, he confessed his sin, but he doesn't wallow in it. 
Rather, he revels in the forgiveness and the steadfast love of the great and the good shepherd. From each of these Psalms, we see that David had a high view of God. He praises God over and over for his care, his love, his provision, his mercy, his grace. In each of these Psalms, David's proclaiming one or more of God's attributes or characteristics. And these are the truths that David was given comfort by. These truths that David knew about God, his high view of God is what I believe brought him comfort during his trial and led him to be able to say in verse 22, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. David couldn't cast his burden on the Lord if he didn't believe that God could handle it, if he didn't believe that God was sovereign over it, if he didn't believe that God loved him in the midst of his difficulty. A very close friend of mine, Jimmy Stitzinger, taught here recently on, at our men's breakfast and the example he used of casting your burden on the Lord was he's saying to cast something away is to throw it away. Have you ever tried to throw a baseball, he said, while still holding it in your hand. You can't do it. So to cast something away, I have to let it go completely. And that's what David says a high view of God can do. I can cast my burden away. I can let it go completely because God's got this. And running to God and reminding himself of who God is, David was able to calm his weary heart. He was able to cast his burden on the Lord and he was able to say, it doesn't matter what's going on in my life. It doesn't matter how difficult this situation is. God's got this. My God's got this. David's strength, David's comfort, David's balm for his hurting soul was rooted in his knowledge of God and the relationship that he had with God. And that allowed him to be able to calm his heart and say, I will trust in the Lord now. I know God's gonna hear me. I'm still gonna lift my, my prayer to him, he says in verse 17. I'm still bringing my complaint. My complaint hasn't completely gone away, but I can rest in the fact that he's in control. I can rest in the fact that he's sovereign and he's got this. This passage has meant a lot to me personally over the last year as I've studied it, but also as I've just read it from my own heart. As many of you know, it was about a year ago, last April, that I started experiencing some neurological symptoms that mimic stroke symptoms. I went to the hospital a couple of times and I've had the last year has been filled with all kinds of medical tests. And the doctors have uh, diagnosed me with lesions on my brain, but they don't know what they are yet. And they haven't been able to diagnose them. We're still just pending more tests, more MRIs. And so during the last year, in the strength that God has given and in the strength that he provides, there's been days when I've been able to say, all right, Lord, this is from you and I can trust in you and I can rest in you. But there's also been days when inside I felt anguish and turmoil. There's been days when the uncertainty of the future, when the difficulty of the unknown has weighed on me. There's been days when I've wondered, how am I gonna be able to provide for my family? There's been days when I've wondered, how long will I be here with my family? And on those days, this passage has caused me to be able to say, my God's got this. My God is sovereign and in control. And I can rest in him and I can take comfort in him. Whatever your burden may be today, whatever your struggle is, whether it's a marital struggle, whether it's that wayward child, that parent that you want to see saved, that family member who just seems to reject the gospel, whether it's a work difficulty, maybe you've lost your job, whatever financial difficulty you're going through, whatever your burden, run to God. Pour your heart out to him. Meditate on who he is. Preach truth to yourself and cast your burden on him. The one who is your rock, 
your refuge, your salvation. Run to God and say, God, I know you've got this because of who you are. If you're struggling today, if you're feeling weighed down, if you're feeling burdened and you need someone to talk to, someone to pray with you, someone to encourage you, there's gonna be some people over here to my right by that door. Please see them after the service. If you're sitting here today and you realize you don't know God though, you don't have a relationship with him where you see him as a loving father who rescues and redeems and adopts lost sinners because of the work of his son, you can be reconciled to him today. You can run to him today in repentance and I would beg of you to do that today. Please don't put it off, don't delay. Today is the day of salvation, scripture says. You also, please see those people at the door there. Talk to somebody around you. Together, let's run to God. The holy, majestic, all-powerful, all-loving, all-sovereign, all-good God of the universe and let's cast our burdens on him so that just as David says at the end of verse 23, in the midst of everything going on, I will trust in you. Let's pray. Father, we know that life is difficult. We know that we struggle. We know that we're gonna face hard times. And yet, Lord, you are there for us. You are our rock, our refuge. You are our salvation. And so, Lord, help us to remember these truths when they're so easy to forget. Help us to run to your word. Help us to remind ourselves of who you are and what you've done for us and what you've promised to do for us in the future. And, Lord, may that bring us rest and comfort and peace. Lord, help us also to run to the church body. Help us to remember that though we can live the Christian life alone, we're not meant to. We're meant to do it as a church family and as a church body, bearing one another's burdens, encouraging one another, sharpening one another, and challenging one another. So Lord, please help us to do that. Lord, when we run across someone in our church body who's struggling, help us to, to surround them, help us to, to love on them, help us to comfort them. And Lord, help us to just lift up your name, to declare it great to the lost and the dying world around us. And we pray these things in your name, amen.